we stand in the presence of God's Word. Do not be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action. Have your lamps lit. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This is the word of the Lord. Growing up near a small town down in Texas, when our church had its annual revival, we wanted the church to be filled, so church members invited their neighbors and friends to come, and they came. So we went to their revivals. I remember distinctly when I was a little boy going with my mother and father, my younger sister brother, to one of these neighboring churches. The preacher who was there, the guest preacher, was a fire-eater. And he began by saying, Tonight before you leave, you will be on your way to heaven or you will be on your way to hell and you will decide. And he ranted and raved for nearly an hour and ended by saying, If you do not come now, you have chosen this night to go to hell. Uh, he was preaching on this text right here. Yeah, be ready. Lamps trimmed. You never know when the Son of Man is coming. But he forgot the first verse of this particular part. It's kind. It's filled with grace. It's all about acceptance. Jesus is nudging us. Don't daydream through life. Don't pass along unexamined life, as our poets remind us. Be aware, be alert, make the most of every day. But he, the Almighty One, is not the enemy. I underline four things here for you to think about as you come to the table. Don't be afraid, he says again. One translated, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Behavioral scientists say we have a tendency to be anxious because we're a strange mix, we homo sapien. About 98% like some other primates, but 2% quite different. That our frontal lobe of the brain kept growing and developing until one day we could project ourselves into the future. We can anticipate. We can plan. We can also be self-critical. Chimpanzees do not sit around and ask, I wonder why I like bananas more than I like rutabagas. But we can. Why do I like what I like? Why do I dislike what I dislike? What about tomorrow? What about next week? What about next year? And yet Genesis is emphatic that when God created humans, he not only said, oh, this is good, like birds of the air and beasts of the field, but this is really good. This human I've made, this is a really good thing. But our anxiety level, 
because we tend to think of ourselves only as being like the other primates, giving in to all of our appetites, trying to be sure we're never without again. Or we think so much of ourselves that we've emphasized that other part of us that the Bible and theologians have called the imago dei, the image of God, that part of us that helps us project ourselves into the future to plan, to be critical, to evaluate. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. You see, Luke in his writing, is always concerned about the poor. Start to finish. What about the poor? What about the widow? What about the orphan? What about the stranger, the alien among you? If you have more, you should share with those who have less. I was reading a Newsweek magazine just this week, an article by Susan Cheever. She said that in America... We salute those who are self-made. We give special accolades to a self-made man, a self-made woman. And if we keep reminding them they're self-made, then they think, hey, I made it. It's mine. I can save it. I can buy more stuff. I can waste it if I want to. And she says, where was this obligation of the nobility, the noblesse oblige. What happened to that idea that those who have more are supposed to share with those who have less? She said, think about some of the great names in America who've given generously. John D. Rockefeller, she said, we all think, gee, if I had as much money as Mr. Rockefeller had, I'd give away millions. But she said, John D. Rockefeller did not inherit his money. His mother and father took him to church when he was a little boy, and they taught him how to share. And the first job he had as a young adult, he was an assistant bookkeeper in Ohio, making 65 cents a day. He made $200 a month, working six days every week. But from his 200 he put $20 in the offering plate every month. He was taught to share. If he had 65 cents a day, he gave six and a half cents to the church so that it could benefit others. And when he had millions, he gave away millions. If you have more, share. Don't waste. Don't just buy more stuff. Share. The second thing it says, little flock. I underline that. I thought it was important. Jesus is first of all stirring up all kinds of images in these Jewish followers of his. Flock. We know about these nouns of groupings. He didn't say gaggle as of geese. He didn't say herd as of cattle or buffalo. Flock is about sheep. It's about sheep. Ah, yes, we remember those prophets 800 years before who dared walk into the presence of a king and say, the Lord God told me you are not shepherding his sheep. You are not taking care of the flock. 
and he will deal with you. And when finally God did deal with them by offering them up to the Babylonians, and they found themselves enslaved again, not as in Egypt, but in Babylon this time. And these great courageous voices like Ezekiel and the second Isaiah were saying, I know the king is dead. Our king was supposed to be our shepherd. He failed us. But the Lord God Almighty is saying, I will come and shepherd my people myself. And we Gentile Christians believe he did exactly that in Jesus of Nazareth for us, the long-awaited Messiah of God. I am shepherding you. You are my flock. He calls them little flock, do you notice? Little flock. Every preacher's prayer is that when he or she gets to church, every seat is filled. It's our prayer every week that every seat would be filled. Our flock is always smaller than we wish. Always. We all would love to have a big flock. As Jesus moves relentlessly now toward Jerusalem, more and more drop away. Until finally he says, will you also leave me? Where will we go, one asked. You have the words of eternal life. When they looked at the Roman Empire that controlled the Mediterranean world, they must have felt so small and insignificant. He acknowledges that little flock. Rick Hamlin and his wife Carol live in New York City. They're active members of a church, go every Sunday, go Wednesday night for choir rehearsal, sing with their choir on Sunday morning. Recently, though, they took a Sunday off to go into a small town where Rick grew up to spend the weekend with his mother and to go to church with her on Sunday morning because they knew this was going to be a tough weekend his father had suddenly had a sudden break in his health and it had to be placed in an assisted living center. So Rick said when we got to church, Mom led us right to the front pew, left side where she and Dad and we, when we were growing up, had always sat. She sat in her pew. But Dad was not beside her. Dad had been an usher all those years. Every Sunday morning, he'd stand in the men in the bathroom and tie his own bow tie. He had lots of them, and he'd stand there and tie and tightly gut it just right. And then he'd usher folks at the church and sit on the front row by my mother. He was in an assisted living center. Now, the custom at this church was for the minister to come in just before the service started and say, during this hour, we want to have on our hearts the following, and he'd read a little list of folks who were sick and had special needs. So Rick said he began to read, and he got through, and he hadn't called Dad's name. And I leaned over to my mother as the organist began to play and asked, why didn't he read Dad's name? And she said, I didn't tell him. I didn't want to trouble him. And Rick said, Mom... These people need to know. These people are your family. These people want to know 
We know God knows, but these people need to know. Little flock, he says. Little flock. Number three, it is God's good pleasure. God's disposition toward you is of benevolence. God wants good to come to you, grieves if something bad is happening to you. Have you enjoyed the Olympics as much as I have? Really been enjoying them. I haven't seen them during the daytime, of course, but at night I've been watching. I've been reading in the newspapers, magazines. There are a lot of wonderful stories that come out of the Olympics. The other day, early in the morning, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, and here was an article about a German weightlifter. Big article, big picture. This guy with all this weight in his coach was just a few feet away, just with his eyes looking like this. And the article was about this fellow named Steiner, who later in the week got a bar down over his head and on his leg. Same guy. Well, the Wall Street Journal was writing about him earlier in the week before that all happened and saying, boy, this coach had figured this weightlifter out. He knew how to motivate him. And when the coach was asked about how, how did you learn to do that, he said, I read a book written by an American professor from Ohio State University. So this writer in the Wall Street Journal had looked up the book. It's written by a professor named Dr. Stephen Rice. He's not writing about athletics is all. He has devised 128 questions in a questionnaire that help identify the 16 biggest emphases of your life. Uh, some have more of one, some more of another. And this coach had read that book, and even though it wasn't about weightlifting, it was about motivating people, and he said he had figured out this weightlifter, and he knew how to motivate him. Well, Bear Bryant knew how to do that 50 years ago. I read the biography of Bear Bryant. He was a big man down in Texas when he coached Texas A&M, and then, of course, he went to Alabama from there and had great success. In the biography, Bear Bryant says... There are different personalities on every team. And some of them, you need to kick them in the rear and take names. And some would be crushed inside if you did that to them. They need encouragement, a kind word, an arm around their shoulder pads. As he got older, he said, I got tired of being the one having to kick rear ends and take names. So I hired somebody to do that part for me. And I could be their daddy. And I could be their granddaddy. I could be the hugger. Let somebody else do the rear kicking. He said, if you got a Joe Willie Namath quarterbacking for you like I did, you need a rear kicker. But you and I had in our congregation for 15 years Dr. Hank Knight who was dean of the chapel at the University of Tulsa, he played strong safety for Bear Bryant. Hank Knight didn't need kicking in the rear. Soft-spoken. He needed encouragement. Hank, you can do this. Nobody can get behind you. Nobody can get behind you. You're going to cover that field better than it's ever been covered in Alabama history. See? Well, guess what? Who knows more than a German coach or a Bear Bryant about you and what your needs are? And he wants to meet your needs. Gives him pleasure to meet the deepest needs of your life. 
And so then it concludes by talking about the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. Again, Dr. Brandon Scott reminded us when he was here for the Barton Clinton Gordy series, a man who has spent 40 years studying the parables of Jesus. He's a Roman Catholic, teaches at Phillips Theological Seminary, has a distinguished endowed chair in New Testament studies. He's focused for 40 years of his adult life on the parables of Jesus, and he concludes every one of them is about the kingdom of God. Every one of them. That's what he's talking about. Dr. Scott's last book was Reimagining the World as the Kingdom of God. We pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what does that look like, this kingdom of God? Where God is revered. Where we know there's only one. And we live every day as if that be so. And that one so loved that he gave his son Jesus. Ho Ding Chai was born in Korea at a bad time in Korean history. A great war occurred in the late 40s, early 50s. Many of you remember it well. I do. President Dwight David Eisenhower was elected. A part of his platform was, I will end that war in Korea. I will end that war in Korea. And he did within a few months after he, he was inaugurated. But the people of Korea and many Americans who went there to help those in the South lost their lives. Ho Ding was a little boy. His father was a Christian pastor, a Korean Christian pastor. And when the communists overran their little village, he saw his father taken by these North Korean soldiers. He never saw him again. They received word a few days later that they had taken the men only a short distance away and had shot him, killed him. Huding's mother, he said, surrounded my sister and me with her love, started walking south as fast as she could go. She wanted us to be safe. She believed moving south was the best way. Finally, peace was established by dividing Korea north and south. My mother worked hard all those years and somehow got me to America. When I saw America, I knew this was the land of opportunity. You work hard here, you can get ahead. And I worked hard. Nobody worked harder than I did. I was an engineer for IBM. I married an American woman. We had a son, a daughter. I was asked after years at IBM to be a professor at a major university in California. But I left behind the God of my father and mother. I just worked and worked. And in my early 50s, I went into a deep depression. I was afraid to tell anybody how I was feeling. One weekend, I drove up into the mountains of California, really intending to take my life. I had the weapon in my hand. My hand was shaking, and finally, he said, I jumped back in my car, rushed home, and told my wife what I was feeling. She called a counselor, and he said, that counselor began to help me examine my life. He asked, will you tell me about your mom and dad? Our lives start with our moms and dads. Tell me about yours. And every time he asked, Ho Ding would say, oh, my mother was the greatest 
the greatest. She prayed and worked and prayed and worked and prayed and worked and look, here I am in America, I've succeeded, I've done everything well. And then one afternoon the counselor asked, what about your father? When I ask about your family, you rush off to tell me more about your mother and you don't want to talk about your father. What is there about your father you don't want to talk about? And finally he said, it hit me. I started sobbing into my hands and I said, I did nothing. I did nothing to save him. And this counselor said, they were soldiers with automatic weapons. You were a little boy. There was nothing you could do. Don't you know that? That your father and your mother understood there was nothing you could do. He said, I embraced my, my father's God and my mother's God. I turned again to the one whom he had preached, the one to whom she had prayed, the one from whom I'd been running for the last 40 years. I discovered I didn't need to run. I just needed to come home. 